are listening to the Sports Daily. I'm your host, Reality Steve. Thank you all for tuning in. Got a lot of stuff to talk to uh, today about on the podcast. A lot of different topics. We're going to talk a little football, still some Super Bowl leftover stuff. We're going to talk about logos in the NFL. We're going to talk about the number one team in college basketball losing yet again. We're going to have a new number one. We're going to talk a little NBA, and we might even talk a little golf, believe it or not. And we will get to that momentarily. So the first thing I want to discuss is what I've discussed every day since the Super Bowl, and that is the holding call, but not necessarily go over the call itself. You already know how I feel about that, that it was the only holding call in the game. I can't believe that was the one they called out of every single play in that Super Bowl. It wasn't egregious enough to call that. Patrick Mahomes hadn't even thrown the ball yet. The hold had already occurred, and then he threw the ball, and nothing was held after he threw the ball. So it just it didn't prevent anything. Just bad call all around. Anyway, Juju Smith-Schuster was the Kansas City wide receiver who was held on that play. James Bradbury was the Eagles cornerback who held him and got the penalty and even said after the game, yeah, I held him. I was just hoping to get away with it. I think that was him just being nice. I think he just doesn't want to make it sound like he's making excuses at the end of the game. And none of the Eagles... Coaching staff, Jalen Hurts didn't say it. Like, look, we didn't lose that game because of that play. We lost because of other things. However, did you see what Juju did on Valentine's Day? Juju Smith-Schuster, who is literally looking to salvage his career right now. He's working on a bunch of one-year deals. He's a third wide receiver at best on any team. And I understand he's got bragging rights. They won. He's got a world championship ring now because the Chiefs beat the Eagles. However, on Valentine's Day, on his social media account, he put out a mock Valentine's Day card that you know you give when you're in fifth grade to somebody that says to and from. And on it was a picture of James Bradbury, the cornerback who held him, and he wrote, I'll hold you when it matters most. Happy Valentine's Day. Look, Juju. That was in poor taste. And here's why. Because James Bradbury didn't complain about it. If James Bradbury would have said after the game, bullshit call, never held that guy, I don't need to hold that guy to guard him. He knows it, I know it, the whole world knows it. Then Juju had every right to throw shade back at him like, hey, man, keep your whining. We won the game. I'm a world champion and you're not. And then throw the whole Valentine's Day card. I'll hold you when it matters most. Then it'd be funny. But Juju win with some class. The guy admitted he held you. And he wasn't. And and none of the Eagles are complaining about that call being made, even though I've probably complained more in the last three days that that call was made than the Eagles have. And here's Juju Smith-Schuster putting it out there on a Valentine's Day card that's, you know, made up to make fun of James Bradbury, saying, I'll hold you when it matters most. It's like, okay, you really need to do that? Like, you're Juju Smith-Schuster. You are barely hanging on in the NFL. Just, I thought it was pretty classless. Really, it was. You didn't need to do that. He didn't provoke you. If he provoked you, totally get it. He didn't. He actually did the opposite. Admitted his fault. The other thing I wanted to mention 
And I, because I didn't want to nerd out with it the day after the Super Bowl, but I did reference it when I said the Kansas City Chiefs completely out schemed the Philadelphia Eagles, especially on those two touchdowns that were wide open. One to Sky, was his name Skyler Moore, and one to Kadarius Tony. And it was just they knew exactly what to do when Philly threw a certain look at them defensively, and those two guys could have crawled into the end zone once they caught the ball. They were so wide open. Do you know how wide open they were? 98% of the catches in the NFL this year. This comes from Peter King's column on Mondays after the Super Bowl. 98% of the catches in the NFL this year were done with less than a 10-yard cushion. Touchdown catches, sorry, not just any catch. Touchdown catches. So 98% of the time someone caught a touchdown this year, there was a defender within 10 yards of him. So it's pretty much almost every touchdown you see in the NFL. There's someone within 10 yards. The Kansas City Chiefs got two touchdowns in the Super Bowl that were outside of that 98%. Nobody was within 10 yards of the receiver. That's pretty amazing. And here's something that Peter King dove into with the coaching staff after speaking with them after the game, that this is pretty amazing. The, and it's almost like you can't almost blame the Eagles because they didn't see it. The Kansas City Chiefs ran over 1,200 plays this year in four in three preseason games and 17 regular season games and two playoff games before the Super Bowl. They ran over 1,200 plays and those plays, which is essentially the same play just done on different sides, uh, the receiver going in motion and immediately planting and kicking right back out and being wide open. They only ran that play once all year. And yet they ran it twice on back-to-back plays inside the 10-yard line that got them touchdowns that were wide open. So you'd be like, oh, man, Philly got out-schemed. Yeah, they did. But now you could be like, they studied. if they studied every single play that the Chiefs ran this year, they would have only seen it once. So how can you plan for something like that? It's almost like tip your cap to the Chiefs that are literally running plays that they hadn't run all season in the biggest game of the year. And it worked big time because, as I said, the receivers could have crawled into the end zone. They could have done a bear crawl into the end zone. They could have done swimming backwards on the ground into the end zone. It was wide open. But to hear that and to hear it broken down like that, that they actually got that much and they barely ran the play all year. They ran it once. Because you got to think, when you're going into the Super Bowl, when you have two weeks to prepare, so what is the Eagle defensive coordinator doing? Jonathan Gannon, who's now the head coach of the Arizona Cardinals. He's looking over all the Kansas City Chiefs film from all year. I don't know how many games he watched. I don't know if he watched every. Maybe he did get through 1,200 plays. I don't know. But I guarantee he watched a shit ton of film. And so all you're trying to do as a defensive coordinator is like, okay, how do we stop this? Well, if we give them this look, they might see that look and audible to something else. Or we need to now disguise that look, make them think it's the look that they think they're getting and go to something else. Like NFL is very, very intricate. I know when you sit there and watch, most fans don't think about that stuff, which is fine. But there are people that do. And there are statistic geeks out there that 
work on stuff and po- po- punch out numbers when certain teams are inside the 35 and what types of play they run out of what set. Cause that's the other thing about football. It's just the different types of sets you can run. You always have five offensive linemen and you always have a quarterback, but are you going to do two tight end? Are you going to do a two tight end set? You're going to do a, a running back and a fullback. You're going to do five wide. You're going to do four receivers. You're going to do three receivers. You can be two, one. There's just so many different formations you can do. And then out of those formations, you have all these options that you can run. And that's essentially why Kansas City has been as dominant as they have. They just have very good offensive coordinators, Eric Bieniemy. And even though Andy Reid calls the plays, Eric Bieniemy is part of that, drawing up those types of plays. To drop two plays in the Super Bowl that you get touchdowns where someone's not even within 10 yards of your receiver when 98% of the touchdowns on the on the whole season – someone was in 10 yards of receiver that shows you you out schemed them so badly and drew up something so creative that it wouldn't have been stopped regardless and I give all the credit in the world to the Chiefs I still don't understand to this day why Eric Bieniemy is not a head coach in the NFL he's literally been the offensive coordinator for a team that's made the Super Bowl three of the last five years he's coached Patrick Mahomes He's interviewed for jobs, and no one is hiring him. It's very, very weird. It's very, very bizarre. You already know what people are saying behind the scenes as to why he's not getting hired. The NFL has a horrible, horrible track record of hiring black head coaches. They just do. This is a league where 70 to 75% of their players are black, yet there's two to three head coaches at most every season out of 32 that are black. It doesn't make a hell of a lot of sense. And Eric Bieniemy has been the offensive coordinator for legitimately the best offense in the NFL for five years now, and the guy can't get a head coaching gig. It's, it's really, it looks really bad on the league. Yes, they're interviewing him, but it, it, unless we're recording these interviews and finding out why, unless he's literally the worst interviewer in the history of mankind, just on resume alone, hire the guy as your head coach. You know? Hell, a guy named Joe Judge, who was a special teams coordinator under Bill Belichick, got the Giants job. You're telling me that guy's more qualified to run an NFL program than Eric Bieniemy, a special teams guy? And you know why he got hired? Because he worked under Bill Belichick. It's like, okay, I get it. Belichick has a coaching tree. If you've worked under Bill Belichick, you're getting hired in other places because he's arguably the greatest coach in NFL history. He's won more NFL titles, and he's won more Super Bowls than any head coach. So I get why people want to purge his staff. But how does Eric Bieniemy keep getting passed up? It makes zero sense. Granted, I'm not sitting in the interviews when he goes to interview with other teams, and maybe he literally just stumbles all over himself and doesn't know what to say and isn't a motivator. I just I can't imagine. I've heard him speak at press conferences. I heard him speak after the Super Bowl. I, it makes no sense. He's not hired, and it doesn't. And he's not getting hired this year. It doesn't look like it. I don't think there's any jobs open right now, is there? They've all been filled. Carolina's been filled. Arizona was just filled. The Colts was just filled. I think they've all been filled, so he's got to wait another year. What else does he need to do? You know? What else do you want him to do in the coaching position that he's in? Offensive coordinator for a team that's won two of the last three Super Bowls and has been to the big game three of the last five years. My hands are up in the air. 
Let's talk a little college basketball. The number one team in the nation for a couple days lost last night, so they're going to drop out of the spot. Alabama, who was twenty-two and three or twenty-two and two going into last night, loses to Tennessee in Knoxville, so they will not be the number one team in the nation come next week. It'll probably just be Houston bumped up into that spot. They are twenty-three and two heading into tonight in a game against SMU. Assuming they'll win that. I don't know who they play this weekend, but good chance Houston is going to be your number one team in the nation come next week. Purdue will move up to number two, assuming they don't lose tonight to Maryland because that'll give them two losses this week, and they'll drop. So, again, I brought this up about a week ago going over the college basketball rankings. We just don't have those blue bloods in the top five and ten this season. And you're used to seeing the Dukes, uh, the Carolinas. You're used to seeing them there. They're not even in top 25 teams. They're not even ranked. They're not even in the top 30. (laughs) Like, Duke can't win on the road. They've won every home game this year, but they cannot win on the road. And Carolina is the most Jekyll and Hyde team. And... The crazy thing about Carolina is they're going to get a high seed. They're going to be around an 8, 9, or 10 seed, and yet who's going to want to play that team? Because they're an 8 or 9 seed. They win that first-round game. They're playing the number one seed in their region in round two, and I don't care who the number one seed is going to be. It's either going to be, you know, either going to be in Bama's region. It looks like Bama, Houston, Purdue, UCLA, slash Kansas. Those are going to be your four number one seeds. They're going to get Carolina in the second round, and Carolina got to the NCAA championship game last year and returned all their starters except for one and added a transfer from Northwestern. So I'm not going to count them out. They've been been the biggest disappointment in college basketball this year just because they – maybe they got too thick-headed after their success last year. No one expected them to go as far as they did last year in the tournament and they get to the national championship game and return basically everybody. R.J. Davis, Caleb Love, Mondo Baycott, Leaky Black. And they just, they've been way too inconsistent this year. But it's almost like sandbagging in golf. They literally have played, and not that they're trying to sandbag. Sandbagging golf means you submit all your higher scores so you can get a higher handicap when you enter a tournament at your local club and then you're not really as bad as they as your scores indicate but you turn in all your bad scorecards to have a higher handicap and then get to in a higher flight and you okay anyway so they're not trying to sandbag because sandbag in golf you're purposely turning in higher scores and not turning in your good ones but they're not trying to lose games obviously but because they have so many losses and, and some really bad losses, they're going to be seeded fairly high, which means they're going to get a low seed in round two. And a one, two, or three seed is going to draw them in round two, and it's not going to be pretty. They might still beat them, but you don't want to see them in your bracket with that much experience and knowing the talent that they have. And maybe this team is just unmotivated during the regular season because they know they're going to make the postseason and they just turn it on then. Not a great strategy to have because it doesn't work all the time. But, you know, when I see a top four seeds, your, your four number one seeds probably going to be Bama, Houston, Purdue, UCLA, maybe Kansas. 
Maybe UCLA and Kansas are two of the t- uh, number one seeds, and those are blue bloods. And then Al- between Alabama, Houston, and Purdue, two of those get the other number one, and one of them falls to a two seed. But you're looking at that. It's possible Texas could slide in as a number one. Maybe if they run the table in the Big 12 tournament, they could get a number one seed. But like, if Houston is the number one seed, now granted they made a Final Four a couple years ago. They made it during COVID. And Calvin Sampson's done a hell of a job at Houston. But I just don't think they're going to be the favorite to cut down the nets. Now, granted, they're going to be a favorite to get there because the Final Four is in Houston this year. So they have a ton of motivation to play the Final Four in their hometown. Alabama, I'm telling you right now, they are my high seed to watch out for and not in a good way because they rely way too much on three-point shooting. And that if that has if they have one really bad off game in the tournament, they could be gone. Not to mention a lot of individual play on that team. A lot of athletes, and they might just out out athletic people on the court and win just based on sheer talent, but not because they play as a team. And I think they're a little too helter skelter for me. I'm very worried about them come the tournament. Just keep that in mind. Purdue I like. But Purdue has also never been to a or hasn't been to a Final Four since like 1959. Now you're looking at teams like UCLA and Kansas. Kansas, the defending national champion. UCLA, very good. They got to the semi. They got to the Final Four during the COVID year. So, or I see. I say COVID year, but I mean 2021 because there was no tournament in 2020. But I, I, UCLA, I, I really like them. Uh, they're going to be in my final four. I told you last a couple weeks ago when I said right after I said TCU is going to be in my final four, I don't care what bracket they're in. They literally lost their two top scores to injury and they have not returned since then. And TCU, I believe has lost every game since then. So it might be good. They're going to end up falling and be a six, seven, possibly eight seed. If they don't get these guys healthy and turned around and they're going to be a very, they're, they're going to be a team to look at. I'm going to have to see if Mike Miles Jr. comes back and Lampkin, the center. I forget his first name. I know it's Lampkin or Lumpkin is his last name. If they're healthy come the tournament and TCU sitting at a six or a seven seed, they are going to beat somebody good. They're going to beat somebody that's a lower seed than them because that seed, that seeding will be inflated because they're currently on a five-game losing streak, I think. Let me pull up their schedule real quick. Uh, TCU. Lost again last night to Iowa State. They have lost four in a row and five of six. The one game they won was a four-point win at home against West Virginia. But ever since they, I had made that statement about them, they were they were eleven and two at the time. They were eleven and two before they entered conference, and now they're six and seven in Big Twelve play, seventeen and nine overall. But Lost to Mississippi State by seven, beat West Virginia by four. Then four losses in a row. Oklahoma State by six, Kansas State by 21, Baylor by four, Iowa State by 11. They've got Oklahoma State at home on uh, this weekend and then Kansas at home on Monday. But I don't know when Mike Miles is coming back. He's the best player on the team. I think he was the Big 12 player of the year last year. So that's a team I'm looking for to possibly surprise if those guys are healthy. But you, you, you look at the other teams. Virginia won the national championship, I believe, 2019. They're sitting there at 19-4. and four. They're a top-10 team. They're probably going to be a two-seed. Arizona, I just never trust in the tournament. 
Uh, they're just they've never been a good tournament team. Yes, they won the national championship, but that was in the '90s, and we're not in the '90s anymore. <laughs> um, Baylor won a national championship the the COVID year, 2021. So they could be a team to be reckoned with. I did like Tennessee for a while, but I read you off the Rick Barnes statistics. He just is an absolute failure when it comes to the tournament. He hasn't been good the last ten years. He hasn't gotten to this. He hasn't gotten to the second weekend nine out of the last ten years he's been in the tournament, which whatever team he coached, and that's just horrible. Gonzaga, uh, sorry, um, it's Gonzaga. No, Gonzaga. It's Zags on their jersey, but it's it's pronounced Gonzaga. Gonzaga. This is their worst team they've had under Mark Few, and they're twenty-one and five. But I've seen them play at least ten times this year, and I'm not impressed. They just don't have the guard play that they're used that they're used to having. Drew Timmy can only take you so far. They they can beat anybody in the nation, but they can also lose to teams that they shouldn't be losing to. And defensively, they're just not what they are. So, as we get closer to the tournament, we're about a month away. I will start giving you some of my sleeper teams. Obviously, I'm going to have a pick or two once the first round comes out. But I'm looking forward to it. I think I, people say this every year, but it really does seem to be wide open this year. Wide effing open. For a national champion. I mean, I could see any of eight possible nine teams winning this thing. There is no clear-cut favorite in college basketball this year. Not even close. And I wanted to end with this. The Lakers made some trades at the trading deadline. They got D'Angelo Russell. They got Jared Vanderbilt. They got Malik Beasley. They played last night. Looked pretty good against New Orleans. They're a new team. They still have a long ways to go to just get into the playoff race. But the biggest thing is Anthony Davis, and I've watched him enough, and he played great the year they won in the bubble and won the NBA championship. He was awesome. They were a great defensive team. He was playing out of his mind. The problem I have with Anthony Davis, when I watch him play, I just don't see fire. I don't see it. You know, you, you talk about some of the greats in the game, the Steph Currys, the LeBrons, the MJs, the Kobe's, that you hear these legendary stories about them putting time in the gym and them doing all this stuff behind the scenes and getting up at 4 a.m. to work out for two hours and then sleep and then work out again for two hours. There's nothing about Anthony Davis that strikes me that he has that hunger inside of him to be the best he can be. I almost feel like he's resting on his laurels ever since he did get that NBA championship in the bubble. But I just watch him play, and I'm like, he should be so much better than he is. So much better. And he's really good. But he doesn't bring it every night. The one thing that I was told growing up when I was playing basketball, and the one thing that that was always drilled into me, was to be a champion, you have to hate losing more than you love winning. That was actually something that was pinned on my wall in my bedroom growing up. And I hated losing. Hated it. Was I one of these that pushed myself to the ultimate limit? No. And if I could go back to my younger days, I probably would do that a little bit more. Because now I know what it takes. I didn't know back then. I was, This was, you know, early 90s. I, I did not know what it took to be great and to get to that next level. Now... 
I'm very well aware what it what it would have taken. But that's not to say that, you know, I'm comparing myself to Anthony Davis. He just doesn't strike me as somebody that's bothered by the fact that this team is sitting there in the 13th seed in the Western Conference. I just don't think he cares. LeBron cares. I just think, and look, it could be, and there are a lot of people in the NBA that don't care. Don't get me wrong. He's not the only one. Because I think with the salaries today, all these guys can be like, yeah, man, 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 I wish we would have won that game, but oh well. You know, I go home, I have $40 million a year. And it's tough because that's reality. So it is kind of hard. And that's why the people that are always on top, that are motivated to do things, even though they have a shit ton of money, those are the most impressive athletes to me. Tiger Woods made more money in endorsements before he teed up his first ball on the PGA Tour than Jack Nicholas had made in his career. So he had all the incentive in the world to never be great. And what has Tiger done? Arguably the greatest golfer of all time. If you, if you don't think he's number one, he's number two behind Jack. But he had already made a shit ton of money signing with Nike. And yes, Jack played in an earlier time where money, there just wasn't money in the 60s in golf. But... Tiger had made more money by signing with Nike and all his endorsement deals before he ever teed it up in the PGA. So he had every reason to just be like, I'm just going to go through the motions. Who cares? Win the tournament? Okay, I didn't win, but I've already got this boatload of money sitting at home. And yet he was still motivated enough to kick everybody's ass as, as much as he did in his prime. And that's why it was so great to watch. I just don't get that from Anthony Davis. I don't think he's an elite athlete. I don't think he's very motivated at all. I think he just relies on his height and his superior strength at times, but he doesn't have the drive to me. And I just be really curious to see if LeBron sticks with him and the Lakers stick with him because you could definitely get players for him. You can get a different superstar. I just want someone that's more driven than him. And that's all. Sorry, AD. I had to end this podcast going off on you. Anyway, thank you very much for tuning in. Really appreciate it. Please rate, subscribe, and review in Apple Podcasts. Much appreciated. I have my podcast number 326 going up in about an hour from now with Kristen Baldwin of EW.com. My daily roundup has been up in your feeds for the last hour, so go check that out. But thank you for tuning in to the Sports Daily. We're back tomorrow with yet another one. And remember, sports will always be the greatest reality show on television. See you!